Our beautiful choir anthem this morning reminds me of a certain journey I was preparing to embark on back in 2008. I was packing up all my worldly possessions in preparation to move from Chicago, Illinois to Davis, California. I had just finished my second year of seminary and the Unitarian Universalist Church of Davis would be the site of a much anticipated year-long internship. I had moved many times before, but this time was different. My now husband, Jason, would be joining me. Jason and I had met at seminary. Our relationship had gotten quite serious. California housing prices were astronomical. And so we decided to move to California together. I was nervous about this big leap, and so I sought out our beloved seminary chaplain, Nan Hobart, for some advice. I knew that over the years, Nan had seen many relationships weather and not always survive the twists and turns of the seminary journey. I knew that she would have some sage, indispensable advice that would put us on the fast track toward marital bliss. <laughs> so what was Nan's advice? Be kind to each other. Wow, that's it? <laughs> Be kind to each other. I was disappointed. I could have come up with that. <laughs> but I still did my best to hold this phrase in my heart because she must have said it for a reason. And so from then on, I just always chose kindness. And you know, we have never experienced any conflict. <laughs> ha ha. I always thought of myself as a realist when it came to relationships. No rose-colored glasses here. But over the course of the last 10 years with Jason, I have been astonished by the number of opportunities to be unkind. They are everywhere. Especially when we are in the thick of something stressful. So many moments so ripe for snarkiness, for pettiness, even for cruelty. I work hard to turn down these invitations to be unkind, and I fail often. I blame. I slip into meticulous scorekeeping, noting each of our infractions, and amazingly, when I do this, I'm always the one with fewer points against me. <laughs> I expect grace and forgiveness for my mistakes, but I can have a hard time offering it when the tables are turned. I could go on, but I don't want to take up our entire morning with examples. <laughs> <laughs> the exercise of kindness sounds simple, but in fact, it is one of our greatest challenges as fallible humans. If it weren't, 
the world's major religious traditions would not be so focused on its cultivation, and in particular, the cultivation of a unique strain of kindness known as mercy. Mercy. This is not a word that I use very often. For my part, probably 90% of my utterances of the word mercy have been in quoting my grandmother, or Elvis, or <clears throat> shout out to bad 1980s sitcoms here, quoting Uncle Jesse from Full House. <laughs> mercy, this is a loaded word. It is a word with deep religious roots. It's deeply embedded in scripture. And maybe mercy makes us bristle because of some bad theology in our past. Maybe it makes us uneasy, or it just feels really unfamiliar. And it makes sense that getting our heads around mercy is difficult. Because even though mercy appears to be all warmth and grace and lace doilies at first glance, at the core of mercy are the worst things that humans can do to each other. Mercy exists only in relationship to the capacity for cruelty. Mercy is compassion or forgiveness shown towards someone whom it is within one pow one's power to punish or to harm. Mercy is the conscious choice to offer kindness when one could exercise cruelty. And while it might not be part of our common vernacular, we live in a world that is so thirsty for mercy. A world <clears throat> that is thirsty for people and for systems of power to exercise compassion instead of cruelty. In reading the news these days, I find myself wondering, uh, fantasizing even, about what it would look like to exercise mercy in our reform of the healthcare system, in our approach to immigrants and refugees, in our relationship to our only home, the planet Earth, in our policing and our criminal justice system. And this feels particularly raw right now in the wake of the anniversary of Philando Castile's death and the painful acquittal of Officer Yanez that preceded that anniversary. And the rhetoric we use to discuss these and so many other topics has grown so barbed, polarized, and often hateful. I know I don't even need to go into the tweets from the White House. So what would it look like for people and systems of power to offer compassion, even when it is within their power to punish or harm? It would require a deep acknowledgement of our shared humanity, that no one's life is more valuable than anyone else's, that there are no throwaway people. And if we really live this out, we would have no choice but to engage in dismantling the unjust, exploitative systems that perpetuate cruelty instead of compassion whether it's through person-to-person -person or systems-level actions, not that those can be separated very easily, 
But if we really lived out a deep understanding of our shared humanity, we would have no choice but to practice mercy. Brian Stevenson is one person who is doing this work of mercy. I find his work very inspiring, so I want to share a bit of it with you this morning. Brian Stevenson is a lawyer, the executive director of the Equal Justice Initiative, the author of Just Mercy, and he also happened to be a keynote speaker at our Unitarian Universalist Association General Assembly last month. Stevenson spends most of his time in jails, in prisons, and on death row, advocating for the most vulnerable within a broken criminal justice system, a system that is a direct, ongoing evolution of American slavery and our failure to deal with our nation's history grounded in racial injustice. Stevenson reminds us that we can see the legacy of slavery in the presumption of guilt and dangerousness assigned to African Americans, especially young men and boys, in the racial profiling and mistreatment that that presumption creates, and in the racial dynamics of criminal justice practices and mass incarceration. Consider some of these facts. The United States has the highest rate of mass incarceration in the world. One out of three black men between the ages of 18 and 30 is in jail, in prison, on probation, or parole. In urban communities across this country, in Los Angeles, Philadelphia, Baltimore, Washington, 50 to 60% of all young men of color are in jail or prison or on probation or parole. In the state of Alabama, 30% of the black male population has permanently lost voting rights. Brian Stevenson devotes a good deal of his time working with people who are on death row. And when we talk about the death penalty, we often talk about whether people deserve to die for the crimes they commit. And we also talk about its startling error rate. For every nine people who have been executed, one innocent person has been exonerated and released from death row. One in nine people on death row is innocent. That's a problem. But for Stevenson, the real question of capital punishment in this country is not whether people deserve to die, but whether we deserve to kill. As Nikki Giovanni says in our reading this morning, I don't think I'm allowed to kill something because I'm frightened. As I get to know Brian Stevenson's work, I've been finding myself viewing uh, an old family story through new eyes. My grandfather, my dad's dad, owned a bag and container store near downtown Kansas City in the 60s and 70s. And on one evening in 1976, he was sitting in his office doing the books at the end of a workday. And he used to carry a roll of cash in his pocket, in his shirt, to pay merchants as they came in. And so the story goes like this. One night, 
a 19-year-old African-American man who, he, who my grandfather had recently hired, entered his office, hit him over the head, and took the cash from his pocket. And then this young man lit some bags on fire and fled. And these bundled bags that he lit on fire, they didn't burn very quickly. They were tightly packed together. And so when the fire department arrived, not that much had burned, and they discovered my grandfather in his office, and he was dead. The story continues like this. About two years later, this same young man was arrested for another crime. They ID'd his fingerprints and reported a match with the prints from the scene of my grandfather's death. This man was sentenced to many years in prison. In fact, he's still in prison today. And I don't know the details for sure, but my family members have reason to believe that he is, has possibly been incarcerated for even longer than his original sentence. The story that I grew up with is that someone was brought to justice for taking the life of one of my family members. Someone got what they deserved, and the system worked. I've been learning about the gross injustices of our criminal justice system over the years, but I never related it to my own personal history until I read Brian Stevenson's book, which is filled with example after example of poor black people being unjustly punished or put to death legally as a result of bad evidence, incompetent or insufficient legal representation and subject to the denial of basic human rights. Story after story of people who found themselves in awful situations because of the way that trauma and systemic inequities play out over the generations. And now I re-examine my own life and the narratives that have shaped it. It could very well be that the story of justice I've carried is just another example of one more life consumed by a system that treats people as less than, than as disposable. And this example is particularly hard for those personally involved to see because of the overwhelming desire for a clear narrative, for an innocent person and a bad guy, for some way to make sense of a sudden tragic loss. How often is the story of justice prevailing really just the upholding of a perverse status quo? I want to end our service this morning with a story from Brian Stevenson's book, Just Mercy. Even though Stevenson seems almost superhuman in his drive and his accomplishments, there have also been times when he has found himself depleted and ready to give up. So I'd like to share a story about one such time, and it's a bit lengthy, so you can just go ahead and settle in. Brian Stevenson and his staff at Equal Justice Initiative were at a point of profound exhaustion when a man named Jimmy Dill was scheduled for execution in Alabama. Stevenson had had no prior involvement in Dill's case, 
and the case itself was very unusual. Stevenson describes it like this. Mr. Dill was accused of shooting someone during the course of a drug deal after an argument interrupted. The shooting victim did not die. Mr. Dill was arrested and charged with aggravated assault and he was in jail for nine months awaiting a trial when the victim was released from the hospital and was recovering fine. But after several months of caring for him at home, the victim's wife apparently abandoned him and became gravely ill. And when the victim died, state prosecutors changed the charges against Mr. Dill from assault to capital murder. Jimmy Dill suffered from an intellectual disability and had been sexually and physically abused throughout his childhood. He struggled with drug addiction until his arrest. He was appointed counsel who did very little to prepare his case for trial. Almost no investigation was done into the poor medical care of the, that the victim had received, care that constituted the actual cause of death. The state made a plea offer of 20 years, but it was never adequately communicated to Mr. Dill. So he went to trial, was convicted, and sentenced to death. One more thing to know about Jimmy Dill is that he had a great difficulty speaking due to a speech impediment that caused him to stutter badly. So to make a long story short, Brian Stevenson worked frantically to shield Dill, Dill from the death penalty based on his intellectual disability. He tried to buy him more time, uh, time to present additional evidence, anything to keep Jimmy Dill from heading straight to his own death based on a deeply flawed process. But despite all his best efforts, nothing came to pass, and Jimmy Dill would be put to death. So Brian Stevenson spoke with Jimmy Dill over the phone right before he was taken to the execution chamber, and it was a hard conversation. And through tremendous stuttering, Jimmy Dill was trying as hard as he could to express his gratitude to Stevenson. It was a heart-rending, painful, tender conversation. And suddenly, a vivid memory broke through for Mr. Stevenson. Brian Stevenson remembered 40 years back to one day when he was 10 years old and he went to church with his mother. And they were outside visiting with friends when he saw a shy, skinny boy standing nearby, clinging to his cousin's leg. And this little boy didn't say a word as the rest of the group was chatting, and so Stevenson asked where he was from. And when this little boy opened his mouth to speak, he revealed a severe speech impediment that made him very hard to understand. He couldn't get his mouth to pronounce the name of the town that he lived in. And Brian Stevenson had never seen anyone stutter like this. And he figured it must be a joke, it must be a game. So he started laughing. 
and everyone else just looked at him, but Stevenson just kept on laughing. And soon his mother pulled him aside and said, what are you doing? What? I didn't do, don't ever laugh at someone because they can't get their words out right. Don't you ever do that. I'm sorry, mom, I didn't mean to do anything wrong. I don't want to hear it, Brian. There is no excuse, and I'm very disappointed in you. Now I want you to go back over there and tell that little boy you're sorry. Yes, ma'am. And then I want you to give that little boy a hug. Huh? And then I want you to tell him that you love him. Mom, I can't go over and tell that boy I love him. People will. But Brian Stevenson saw that his mother was dead serious. And so while all the other kids were watching, Stevenson went up to that little boy who had struggled to speak and said, look, man, I'm sorry. And the apology was genuine. And he looked back at his mother, who was still staring at him. And so he lunged at the boy and gave him an awkward hug. And this hug, it seemed to startle the boy at first. But when he realized it was a hug, he could feel the boy's body relax and felt him hug back. And as his friends looked at him oddly, Stevenson said, as insincerely as possible, half smiling like it was a joke. Uh, and also, uh, I love you. <laughs> but the boy couldn't see Stevenson's face. And the boy hugged him tighter and whispered in his ear without hesitation or stutter, I love you too. Such tenderness. Brian Stevenson thought he would start crying. And 40 years later, sitting in his office, talking to Jimmy Dill on the phone, he was crying. And the harder that Mr. Dill tried to get his words out, the more Brian Stevenson wanted to cry. This man would never have been convicted of capital murder if he had had the money for a decent lawyer, if someone had investigated his past, a system that's supposed to sentence people fairly after fully considering their life circumstances had yet again exploited the inability of a poor person to get the legal assistance they needed. And he thought about all of Dill's struggles and the horrors that he had gone through and he asked himself, why do we want to kill all the broken people? Jimmy Dill offered words of gratitude to Brian Stevenson. They ended their phone call. And Stevenson decided that he was done. He gave up. He had to stop this work of trying to fix situations that were so irreparably broken that he just couldn't do it anymore. And then in the next beat, he realized that his life was just full of brokenness. 
and it hit him. He didn't do what he did because it's required or it was necessary or it was important, and he didn't do it because he had no choice. He did what he did because he was broken too. Stevenson writes, we are all broken by something. We have all hurt someone and have been hurt. We all share the condition of brokenness, even if our brokenness is not equivalent. But our brokenness is also the source of our common humanity. There is strength, there is a power even, in understanding brokenness, because embracing our brokenness creates a need and a desire for mercy, and perhaps a corresponding need to show mercy. What would happen if we all just acknowledged our own brokenness, if we all owned up to our weaknesses, our deficits, our biases, our fears? Maybe if we did, we wouldn't want to kill the broken among us who have killed others. We could no longer take pride in mass incarceration and executing people in our deliberate indifference to the most vulnerable. Let us have mercy, friends. Let us practice kindness all of our days with ourselves and with everyone we meet, remembering that brokenness is something we all share. And in embracing our own brokenness, may we know the need for mercy and may we be generous in practicing mercy out in the world, getting to know the stranger, willing to risk for our collective liberation, building slowly but surely systems that offer compassion instead of cruelty. Let us have mercy, friends. Amen. <laughs>